0: Hi everybody, so join me today we have Dr. Azar Gat. Dr. Gat is the Ezra Wiseman Professor of National Security and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Tel Aviv University in Israel. He is the Founder and Head of the University's Executive Master's Program in Diplomacy and Security and is also the author of books like A History of Military Thought, War in human civilization and nations. Hi, Dr. Gett. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm fine. I'm the former chair, by the way. Sorry, I, I didn't. Former get it. chair of the department. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, good. Okay, okay. Th- uh, thank you for for that for that correction. So. Uh, Okay, so to start off with, today I guess we're going to talk about war, (laughs) war in human civilization at least, because we also have war in other primates, I guess. So so, um, would you say that we could consider war as something that is part of human nature? Yes, but it depends on
1: what you mean by that. Uh, it, there used to be a, a debate, or there is still a debate, on uh, perhaps most people think that we are kind of instinctively inclined to war, that we can't help it, that people are by nature aggressive, and therefore they, uh, war is a kind of uh, automatic response that people into which people fall from time to time. This is wrong and the and the evidence that is that this is wrong is that we have societies the cliche has it you know the swedes and the swiss who haven't fought for centuries and uh, still do not uh, ex- exhibit any signs of distress on that account so it's not it's not a compulsion in the same way that say uh, the instinct the desires for food or for sex are that we feel pressurized to have them. And you don't need the Swiss and the Swedes for that. Most of us live in, uh, at least in the West and in other developed countries, live in countries where there is no war and also uh, are quite uh, happy about it and do not feel uh, distressed. So it's not that people, you know, are, have this uh, compulsion to go to war. What is in our nature is that the, the, um, the capacity to wage war. Basically, uh, we have three ways, three means of achieving our our ends, our our, our objective. That is, by uh, peacefully cooperating with others, by peacefully competing with others, and by violence. And people calculate which uh, avenue is most likely to be most profitable. That's why, in some conditions, uh, social condition, historical condition, people figure out that it's, you know, more advantageous to go to war. In other, they uh, prefer peaceful means, and so forth. So the the capacity to use violence is in our nature. It's like the it's like the hammer in our toolkit. But our toolkit also consists of other uh, instruments. So, it's, it's in our nature as a means, not as an end.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh. but, but I mean, there's some evolutionary basis for, peop- for different groups of humans, let's say, to wage war against each other. So, for example, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, um, it, it, um, it is true that in all societies that have been studied, uh, until now, people wage war against each other to obtain resources, like material resources, and also yeah. and also for the men to have access to more women, and also to acquire perhaps prestige in their respective societies, right? Yes, as far as we can judge, we do not
1: have uh, perfect information on all societies. So some societies are in peace for various periods, and uh, you know we don't have uh, we we cannot uh, judge what happened in other periods in some obscure societies and there've been there were many on the globe until recently so yes uh, so evolutionary we have I, what i say is that we have the machinery necessary for waging war and reason why we do it but we also have the machinery for peaceful cooperation so yes evolutionarily we have them we have both of them and it depends on the circumstances which of the machineries we find more advantageous to employ at a particular moment Mm
0: -hmm. and so would you say that the reasons i pointed out are reasons that we usually get from from why people wage war against each other and sure and, and perhaps uh, other ones could be uh, revenge, deterrence, and things yes. like that.
1: Precisely. So, uh, so yes, as you said, people want uh, precious uh, scarce resources, say like food, on other things that are, are of uh, high value to them. And they want uh, access to uh, sexual opportunities. All this is an evolutionary rationale that applies not only to people but also to other animals. But once you have it, once you have it, there is also there is also suspicion that the other uh, is going to attack you one day. You don't know if he will. You don't know if he won't. So there is the, on top of this, there are other other you know uh, causes of war which are an add-on. On the first level of uh, causes, that is, um, this is called the security di- dilemma. The security d- that the other might might attack you, but I mean, even if he doesn't, you are not sure that he's not going to, to do it because, you know, he might want your your food or he, want, he, want, he might want to steal your women and so forth. So, in all societies, then all uh, we see all, all pre-state societies, we see these um, factors uh, at work, and in a different way also in uh, state societies.
0: Mm-hmm. And would you say that war is mostly a man's affair, and not really a women's affair? It. Uh, it used to
1: be the case for various reasons. Uh, first of all, sexual competition between men is uh, stronger than between women because, uh, because uh, men have the capacity to have uh, fruitful, that is reproductive, uh, sexual intercourse with unlimited number of of uh, women whereas women do not uh, profit in the same way and also because and uh, this is associated with the fact that men are stronger so historically yes men were those who waged war even though women were also involved in the sense that they uh, depended on the booty that the men brought on the fate of the men so it was a collective uh enterprise in the sense that everybody uh, was everybody were you know were, had interest in the world even though it was waged almost exclusively by men it's changing now because it's uh, you don't uh, need physical force as much as uh previously even though still it is the case that women show lesser pros- uh, propensity lesser inclination to join the military, even though, uh, you know, in many fields of the military, they are now uh, equally Mm treated.
0: Okay, so um, with the the development of agriculture and the advent of the Neolithic, human society in terms of structure completely changed. So, I guess that uh, to to introduce this theme here, uh, I would like you first of all to comment on the differences in terms of war, I mean, in, ter- in terms of um, the prevalence of war and in terms of the percentage of men that died in war conflicts? First, first of all, comparing hunter-gatherer societies with pastoralist societies. Uh,
1: so I'm not sure that the difference is strong here. What the advent of agriculture actually did is to create... Um, class society that is uh, differences in property and larger scale societies so whereas uh, hunter-gatherers lived in uh, groups of no more than around 500 on average the the tribal group um, agricultural society started to grow in size and at the end they developed uh, political structure that is hierarchical um, uh, political structure, that is, states. And the states continue to grow in size. So what we have is an asymmetrical relationship between the poor in society, the rich in society, the rulers in society. We begin to have uh, taxes and we begin to have uh, regular armies and large armies as a function of large societies. But paradoxically, mortality in war actually declined during the states. And it's it's paradoxical, it goes against our intuition because we are used to have a spectacular number of dead uh, in state wars. But what we need to consider is not absolute um, uh, size or number of dead, but the percentage of dead. Uh, among uh, in the population so if you have uh, societies, state societies of millions uh, the actual percentage of those finding death in war is actually lower than among hunter gatherers Among hunter gatherers about uh, 25% of the men and about 15% of the population uh, usually found death violent death, whereas, uh, and this is the average only for the most severe state wars, usually the uh, average is much lower in state wars, and there are various reasons for that, one of the reasons is the actual size of states, so in tribal wars, uh, the whole tribe is exposed, whereas in state wars, the front is uh, usually hundreds of kilometers away. So, and, and the, uh, so, the civilian population is more protected unless the invasion reached the depth of the country. Uh, and this is, why, this is the reason also why civil wars are the most destructive, the, mo- the most lethal, uh, lethal of wars because the warfare takes place within the societies. So, the destruction and exposure of the civilian population is much higher. As we see, unfortunately, today in Syria and obviously throughout history.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, comparing societies after, let's say, the development or the advent of agriculture, because people tend to characterize pastoralist societies as being particularly relevant, uh, particularly sorry, particularly violent in comparison with other societies which have agriculture at their basis. So, uh, I mean, in, in pastoralist societies, it's easy or relatively easy for people if they wage war against one another to take the herd animals with them and they don't have to settle in the specific place where, for example, people uh, that that have certain kinds, uh, that have agriculture at their basis, they have their plantations there. And so if they are conquered by other people, they have to settle at least a certain number of people there. But in pastoralist societies, they can simply take the animals with them, right? So that,
1: That's true, that they can simply rob the animals uh, in a successful war. But agriculturals too, uh, fight for territory. I would say that, that pastoralists have this particular, uh, and partly justified, uh, bellicose uh, image because uh, they... P- They can pray with almost immunity on the agricultural neighbors. Uh, Pastoralists among themselves are both exposed to each other, so they uh, are more weary of starting uh, a struggle. But uh, but pastoralists throughout history, especially host pastoralists, especially in the Eurasian uh, steppe, the mongols the uh, uh, turkish uh, tribes and so uh, and so forth they could prey on their agricultural uh, neighbors on the great civilizations of say china or persia or, or or europe and so forth or russia and so forth and and they could uh, and and the, the neighbors could not pay them in kinds because they were unable to catch them they were mobile and they, it was so it was a one-way uh, prey relations, a relationship between, the, between pastoralists and agriculturalists.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, and uh, again, comparing uh, pre-state societies and even pre-agricultural societies and state societies or agricultural societies. So, uh, would you say that, that we can put all together under the same rubric, Um, All types of agricultural societies like, let's say, chiefdoms, kingdoms, and even the empires, and uh, and compare them all together with pre-state societies or pre-agricultural societies and say that uh, all these different kinds of agricultural societies are uh, um, induced, let's say, in terms of war, less uh, deaths and less casualties in, in proportion than pre-state societies. Yes. So, so state societies historically uh, were prone to war,
1: and they fought uh, a great deal of the time, uh, by and large, with uh, you know, with uh, with some variation, of course, but still they were fighting a lot. Uh, but as you say, as compared to pre-state societies, they suffered less mortality uh, in relative terms, that is relative to population, than small-scale society for societies for the reason uh, we've just mentioned, that is that uh, small-scale societies are more vulnerable. And they also have uh, state societies, by being large-scale, also have uh, a smaller capacity to of to mobilize the population. I mean, they can they can only uh, mobilize say 10 percent of the population because the others are needed in the fields and so forth. So, so the, the problem of logistics of going food and so forth is is greater for state society, so both because of the relative size of the armed forces and because of the uh, lesser exposure of the civilian population, uh, state war, although ostensibly, apparently large scale, very spectacular in scale, uh, in actuality cause less less casualties than pre-state societies.
0: Uh, And so, um, would you say that uh, when we have centralized power and big societies, that even though uh, a fewer number of men die in war, that it is easier for the people in power to mobilize men to go to war uh, in comparison with what is possible in smaller societies and even pre-state societies it is easier in terms of compulsion since since they have the authority
1: and uh, you know uh, command authority over their societies it is it's easier in terms of compulsion there is lesser compulsion except for social pressure and especially for uh, except for a kinship relationship in tribal societies usually people help their friends and kings, but are less uh, ob- not feel themselves obligated to join if it's not the uh, immediate uh, relatives and so forth. Often, this is often the case. but in, in, in so in state societies, they have the the rulers have the authority, the ability to by by the threat of punishment to uh, to induce people to go to the military. On the other hand, but at the same time, it's, it's more difficult to maintain the armies. I mean, it's, uh, again, easier in terms of the taxes that you can levy with which you maintain the armies, but in terms of the logistical difficulties, it's a heavy burden. With tribal societies, people simply leave their homes for a day or two and go a few kilometers and fight with their neighbors. Here, you have to create the entire infrastructure or logistical infrastructure, so that you are able to maintain such armies away from home.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, and now that we're talking about states, uh, we can also perhaps talk about statism and even nationalism. So, uh, the first question I would like to pose is, uh, because some people, uh, I guess, have the idea that nationalism uh, arose in in the nineteenth century, but but even before that, we already had at least some types of uh, nationalist prototypes. Let's say right. So in, the, for example, in the in the Middle Ages.
1: Uh, exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, the, it's the it's the fashion has been the fashion since. Uh, since perhaps the 80s, sometimes earlier, to equate nationalism with modernity. And obviously, uh, nationalism has changed uh, in modernity, because of the changes that modernity brought with it. But the idea that people did not feel uh, affinity to the kin, in terms of nation, is, is absurd. And nationalism, they had a national identity, they know. Uh, so nationalism existed since since uh, I don't know, since the beginning of statehood. Just an example, the first large-scale state is ancient Egypt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, obviously, it's, uh, that the Egyptians knew that they were Egyptians, and they knew that the others outside Egypt were foreigners and uh, every form of uh, ritual in the temples in the national in festivals and so, so forth emphasize um, emphasized this point that you know the, the the gods were the gods of egypt and foreigners were foreigners and so forth so the idea that the peasant in the fields had no idea of him being part of an egyptian people is is uh, absurd and it was advanced by by theorists who did not actually have a good acquaintance with the actual history of the people concerned. Obviously, not all states were national. Part of the states were smaller, that is, they were city-states. So, for example, in Greece, the Greeks know, knew that they were all Hellenes; that is, that they all belonged to a larger... Uh, ethnos which were the Greeks but that the political units were only part of that nation so they were aware of this and they were aware of the difference between the political uh, identity and ethnic identity Uh, and also you had the multi-ethnic empires which brought together a variety of ethnicities, but even in these empires there, were, there was usually a dominant ethnos, or a dominant people, who by, which by force of arms made the others subservient. So it's not that an ethnic national uh, affinities, identities did not exist between, between modernity, and the same for Europe. Uh, China is another uh, ancient um, nation, uh, nation, and nation state. Japan is one. Korea, on which we hear uh, so much uh, these days, is also a very ancient um, uh, nation state, national state, uh, which fought the. uh, both the Chinese and the Japanese, throughout history, for liberty, the Vietnamese fought the Chinese for national liberation uh, for more than a thousand years, and there are many other cases. And obviously, in Europe, there are many old nations in Europe which emerged with the emergence of states in Europe in the late in the early uh, Middle Ages. It depends. Uh, so, uh, so for example, uh, the Scots. And the English and the Swedes and the and the Danish and the Poles and the Russians and the Czech are all examples of old nations which emerged very I mean, already in the Middle Ages.
0: Mm-hmm. And so would you say that uh, what people refer to when they talk about what happened in the 19th century, for example, with the unification of Germany and Italy, would you say that that is much more a process of unification and then to try to get all that people um, to look into the same, to have the same national identity than, than really to to talk about that as being the first historical development of nationalism?
1: Uh, As I said, modernity made a difference. I mean, uh, first of all, the concept of of, uh, popular sovereignty as the main legitimizing principles of states rather than the authority of kings. So, if it's not the authority of kings, but national, uh, national, uh, popular sovereignty, the will of the people, so uh, the people once uh, once asked about it, uh, showed a strong affinity towards uh, towards uh, belonging to uh, their own uh, nation state. Uh, and by the way, if you we talk about Germany or Italy, so at least in the case of Germany uh, it's not that the German state appeared in the 19th century it's the second uh, Reich that was created in the 19th century but during the Middle Ages there was the German Empire, it was called the Roman Empire but it because the Roman title was very prestigious, so and, and every ruler wanted to have this imperial title, but what it was in effect was a German state with some imperial ambitions outside the states, but still the electors of the German empires. It was there was a uh, college of electors that elected the German empire, were always the German princes, uh, with only one addition, and that was the kingdom of Bohemia, that from the 14th century was also German so all of them were German and it also was all based and, and uh, again if you look at the, uh, at the disintegration of the Empire of uh, Charlemagne, of uh, Karl the Great uh, the fact of the matter is that it was divided along linguistic lines the German part became the German Empire and the Latin speaking uh, part Became what was later to become France. So the the uh, breakup occurred along linguistic and ultimately national lines. So uh, and there were other changes during the nineteenth the century that made the popular voice stronger. For example, the Uh, migration from village communities where people you know were impotent to affect the uh, political process they were as uh, Marx called it they were like potatoes in a sack that is they were (laughs) they were the object of the political process rather than being able to influence it so once there was Uh, urbanization, with industrialization. People moved to the cities and were more capable of expressing their views and uh, remarkably, surprisingly, these views turned out to be national. Mm -hmm.
0: And so, uh, what would you say was uh, throughout history the influence um, an ideology like nationalism played in the development and justification of war? So, To give a concrete example, what what would you think was the importance of the development of this kind of national identity? Uh, What influence did it have in the development of the world wars?
1: Uh, throughout history, not only during the World Wars, but obviously from the 19th century it became even more accentuated, but throughout history national identity, uh, ethno-national identity forged was a major uh, factor in uh, not only in, uh, in, in fixing borders between uh, political identity, but as a factor in solidarity. So people would regard uh, foreigners as a threat, and in case of in case of conflict, they would join up. Uh, take Russia for example, which was you know a very despotic state; the people have no say. They were subjugated by the aristocracy and by the Tsar, who was a despotic ruler. They had absolutely no so by. According to the uh, modernists, they had the no notion of being uh, Russians, the Russian peasantry. But still, when Russia was invaded by foreigners, so it's say by Poland in the 17th century, by the Swedes in the early 18th century, and most uh, famously by Napoleon in 1812, the Russian population rose to the, against the invaders and with great enthusiasm. This was a patriotic feeling, and obviously when it was necessary. Usually the rulers did not want to rely too much on the masses, unless the masses would have uh, ideas that, you know, that, they, that there were things that they wanted in terms of rights. But at a time of emergency, the rulers would call upon the natural patriotic sentiments of the people in order to, uh, to fight invaders. So, Russian is an example. So, in terms of both borders and solidarity that could be counted on, uh, the the political um, ethno-national divisions always played a huge role. And as you said, during the 19th century and during the 20th century, wars of national character that is waged in order to... uh, Unify a country, unify, uh, join with uh, your kin across the border, uh, became perhaps the major cause of warfare in fe- during first in Europe and then throughout the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And would you say that nationalism was uh, a cause for war or uh, or more of a justification for war? If, if you understand the differentiation, yeah. I'm trying to...
1: Both, I would say, but uh, but it was during the 19th and 20th century, it was very much a cause. That is, uh, people sought unity, they wanted to come together in their own state, they wanted to join with, uh, to free themselves from uh, foreign rulers, they wanted to join with their kin across the borders, so, the kind of wars that we see in the 19th and 20th century where other kinds of war, where, uh, where other reasons for war were partly in decline, is mostly, the, mostly uh, national.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, talking about another type of ideology, let's put it that way, religion. What, what uh, has been the role of religion throughout history? in terms of causing and justifying war. So perhaps we could talk here about what happened uh, during the Renaissance period with the Reformation and then the Counter-Reformation, if you want, of course.
1: Yeah, ideology has always been uh, a factor. And before modern times, ideology was mostly religion, religious. That is uh, one's, uh, one's picture of the world, and the how how uh, how we uh, humans have to conduct themselves in the world has always been a major factor uh, for people. And religious uh, differences uh, matter; they matter uh, because uh, in many times they also coincided with. Uh, ethno-national differences. So the other people had the different religions, and they were also foreigners. So this uh, religious religious feeling cemented national identity. In other cases, uh, in other cases, it was ideology per se. Uh, we do not accept uh, that you know Catholics or Protestants uh, had the right view of how the how the how you know, people had to conduct themselves in the world in order to please God, and people throughout history have been driven uh, to war on that account. Uh, so yes, that also was uh, was a major dif- a major cause of war throughout history.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, so now talking about recent trends in war. So uh, since World War Two. We've been having a historical phenomenon that we call the long peace, right? So, uh, what would you say have been the main reasons behind uh, this phenomena? Wh- why people, why states, uh, since the since World War II, uh, haven't been waging war against each other? Okay,
1: so first, so first, our audience may be surprised to learn that there have been no wars since 1945. So we might better first yeah. explain that we are talking about great power wars. The yes. great, the powers, the great powers no longer fight each other, and uh, this is uh, this is new because throughout history. The great powers are the greatest warriors they fight more than others, and their wars is the most destruct are the most destructive so this is this has been called in the eighties 1980s when people when scholars have begun to pay attention to the fact that the great powers uh, do not uh, no longer fight each other this has been as you said termed the long peace and we have now reached uh, the seventy the seventy third year without Without great power war, and hopefully this will continue. So, when people notice this, the uh, e- the explanation for this lack of warfare between the great powers seemed obvious, and this is the nuclear factor. Uh, since 1945, we have the the nuclear bombs, so people uh, the, the the great powers fear. Uh, mutual annihilation by uh, the bombs, so they do not fight each other. But what uh, uh, scholars have not noticed is that before this uh, long peace, during the 19th century, we, we had two other periods of long peace between the great powers. That is, between 1871 and 1914, we had no war between the great powers, this is 43 years, and the third longest uh, peace between the great powers occurred just earlier, that is between the end of the Napoleonic War 1815 and 1854. This is 39 years of no peace, of no war, and this is certainly a novelty because if you look at the 18th century, or the 17th century, or any century before, you see that the great powers were fighting all the time. So we have something here changing. People always knew that the 19th century was particularly pacifistic, and you also have the long peace after 1945 so we have a change here and the problem is to explain why it has a care, and also to explain the great exception to this change which is the two world wars, which are quite an exception so this is the challenge and most people think that modern war has become uh, rarer because it is more costly or more destructive or more lethal, so uh, the powers are more cautious, but this is not the case. Earlier wars in history uh, were as destructive and as lethal in terms of percentage of the population killed as even World War II, relative to the population, I repeat, not in absolute terms. Absolute terms, uh, World War I cost uh, perhaps 60 million. Uh, dead but the, this is a war that occurred around the world so it doesn't matter if it's one war that is occurring around the world or uh, there were a variety of wars that happened in various places throughout history so what we are asking is the relative number of deaths so exact for example in um, in the 30 years war in Europe 1618 to 1648 it's estimated that in Germany, between one, six, between 15 and 30 percent of the population perished, which is more than what Germany lost in the First and Second World War combined. Mm-hmm. And the same in other wars. I don't know how much you want to go into examples. Say the Second Punic War between Rome and Carthage. So in the first three years of the war, 218 to 216 BC, war lost 25% of its military manpower, which is more or less the same as the Soviet Union lost during the Second World War out of its uh, military, and the Soviet Union uh, suffered the most horrendous casualties of all the belligerents in World War II. So it's not that war, the same, the same applies to the economics of the war. And in pre-modern um, wars, the destruction uh, uh, often brought uh, famine. So people died in, in numbers because of famine and destruction, the destruction of Germany again, uh, or destruction of Russia and China during the Mongol invasion of the 13th century was huge. Uh, so if it's not... If it's not that modern wars became more lethal and destructive, the question that we must ask is why has war been declining in the developed world during the 19th and 20th century? This is, this is the question that I'm trying to answer.
0: Mm-hmm. And you touched on uh, nuclear weapons. Would you say that nuclear we- weapons... Uh, have played a role of deterrence
1: yes of course it's it's, it would be silly to say that nuclear wars did not contribute to the trend obviously they did Uh, it's uh, as they say uh, they uh, on about the hanging rope uh, they concentrated the minds of all those involved wonderfully but it's but we see that the second longest Piece and the third longest piece both occurred before the nuclear era, so there were other factors that must, might must have affected the trend.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're still not sure about what those factors might be. Well, I have
1: I have my answers. If you want, I'll tell you what uh, what my answers are. Uh, the what, what I see is that the, the trend is occurring since. Uh, the beginning of the 19th century since the industrial age. And what we have been experiencing since the beginning of the industrial age is a huge rise in wealth. That is, we are, the wealth has been doubling and doubling again so that by now we are 30 to 50 uh, wealthier That uh, we were in 1800. We uh, yeah. are very comfortable now. So what this means is that wealth is no longer a finite quantity. Until 1800, wealth was a finite quantity and the only way to obtain it is to get more of what the of your neighbor had. So this is a good, uh, this is called the Malthusian trap. There is the, the resources are finite uh, even what you gain by increased productivity is is consumed by a growing population, so it's uh, all very finite and very uh, abysmal, as they said about uh, about the uh, this um, uh, syndrome. So, but but after 1815, what we have with the industrial revolution is that wealth is growing and it is growing most notably by investment at home, from which war is a destruction. So what happened basically since 1815 is not that war has become more costly, it is that peace has become more profitable. So once once you embark on the road to modernization, to industrialization, It pays much more to invest in this than to go to war. Mm
0: -hmm. So uh, another big reason would be the development and the access by the part of the several states that we have to the uh, international economic market. Exactly. But this again is a function of the
1: Industrial Revolution. That is, before the Industrial Revolution, producers produced mostly for their own consumption you were a, pe- a peasant you grew say wheat and you know you have you had uh, two cows and uh, perhaps a few chicken and and you consumed what they produced and only the margin was uh, marketed was sold on the marketplace but once we have industrial production uh, nobody in fact uh consumes what it produces uh, very hard to find what we do is that we are cogs in uh in a vast in uh, production productive machine we produce uh, some uh, products which we do not consume and we all services which would we, we do not consume either And we, in a way, sell them in the sense that we get a salary for what we produce. So once production is entirely directed towards the market, the market itself, that is exchange of goods and services, balloon uh, in comparison to what they uh, were before the industrial age in pre-modern times. So the significance is that much stronger. As John Stuart Mill said uh, in, 19, in 1840-something, he said in the past, the Patriot shouldn't care, sh- didn't have to care much about uh, you know, his neighbor. If the Kingdom of China was gone, it made no difference to him. Uh, or even you know, if it was English, if France was gone, all the better. Uh, But now, uh, our neighbors, other countries, our our clients, we produce to them, we buy from them, uh, things that are of value to us, we sell to them. So, this interconnectivity in terms of trade also is a function of the Industrial Revolution and the huge change that it brought.
0: Mm -hmm. And would you say that another big role has been played by political diplomacy at an international level, so, for example, the role played by the United Nations?
1: I would say, I don't know about the uh, the United Nations per se, its effect was obviously limited, but has been obviously limited, but I would say that polit- international politics, by and large, reflected The rationale that I've just outlined, it's not that people are always able to conceptualize the change, that is to explain it in the terms that I've just suggested, but they nevertheless feel the fundamentals in the sense that they feel that it's not in their interest in the developed world to fight, that it's better for them to do business with each other, and and they also believe that this is the natural order of things it wasn't it wasn't before the uh, modern rationale uh, you know eh, emerged so the political process what uh, what the what the people feel and what the leaders uh the policies that the leader leaders are pursuing in the developed world are such that they reflect this rationale so what we have basically is uh, the rather startling uh, phenomenon that most people do not appreciate that in the developed world, that is, say, in countries with uh, with uh, production per capita of $20,000 and up, upward. In the developed world, say, North America, in uh, Western Europe, in East Asia, in, I mean, in East Asia, I mean, uh, like, in developed countries like uh, Japan or South Korea or, or Taiwan, war has practically disappeared. We, in, in its two manifestations, there are no wars between states, and there are no longer civil wars. People do not appreciate these facts, but there are no civil wars either in these states, even though there might be, you know, might be uh, polit- uh, ethnic ethno-national differences but there are no civil wars anymore whereas in the less developed parts of the world we still see war and in the least developed parts of the world say in Africa in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and in the Middle East we still see wars, wars waged either between undeveloped countries or between developed countries and undeveloped countries but between developed countries, we no longer see war. We no, no longer see the fear of war, the famous security dilemma. So, for example, imagine that, uh, that uh, Belgium and Holland no longer fear a German invasion. They don't no longer fear a French invasion. This is historically unprecedented. And I'm sure that in Portugal you would no longer fear a Spanish invasion. Historically, I mean, uh, against the um, large sweep of history, this situation is unprecedented. At the same, the same, in, this, in the same way, people do not give themselves and ex- do not pay attention to the fact that nothing, in fact, protects Canada from being taken over by the States. At least the Canadians do not feel this possibility at the least. And the same in East Asia. Japan, Taiwan, South Korea do not at all fear war between themselves or with any other developed countries. The only fear of war that they have is with China, which is still far behind in terms of development, even though it develops it's developing fast, and North Korea. So in the developed world, world where the rationale of modernity is fully in place, war has practically disappeared
0: mm-hmm. okay so we already talked about the long piece could you explain to people what what is the new piece about
1: i don't think that the new piece is uh, different from the from the long piece of of from the modern piece the new piece is uh, is uh, not one of the concept that i use. the new piece is uh, what uh, people have noticed has been occurring since the end of the Cold War. But I don't, de- I don't think this is uh, as significant as the modernization uh, piece that I've uh, just outlined.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what is the importance we should give to terrorism and terrorist attacks in the modern, modern world? In
1: the in the form that we have been used to the effect of terror has been mostly psychological it doesn't mean that it's the such psychological effect is not significant obviously it's significant and people are very much worried about this but the actual numbers of those killed by terror is low uh, it, you know, it's uh, it has been pointed out, you know, a bit uh, humorously, that more people are, uh, you know, drown in the bathtub than uh, those killed in terror, and that, that that you know, more people die by falling from ladders, uh, and all sorts of uh, funny statistics uh, like, the, like this. Now, people are not aware of this, and when asked what the actual causes of death are, they list terrorism high whereas it's actually very low. Even in uh, my country, in Israel, the number of those killed by terror acts is relatively uh, low. Uh, terror might become a much more significant cause of death if it ever resorts to unconventional weapons. That is, if it ever uh, you know, uh, puts its uh, hands on nuclear devices, Or perhaps even more dangerously if it uh, gets or develops uh, biological uh, weapons which can spread uh, disease um, uh, epidemics against which there is little immunity or even synthesized bugs or viruses or bacteria that uh, at present we have no immunity against them so uh, so yes, so uh, so anthrax and uh, and uh, the like are among the um, among the epidemics that the state fear might fall in the hands of terrorists and thereby render them much more dangerous uh, as they are today. <laughs>
0: Uh, And what would you say is the importance of the war that is going on, that has been going on in Syria in the world stage?
1: Uh, We don't know. Uh, It's a tragedy for the Syrians, obviously. It has been quite horrendous in terms of both deaths. There is uh, half a million dead by now, uh, around half a million dead, and there are millions and millions, about a third of the Syrian population has been uh, has been has become refugees. Part of them in their own country, part of them outside. And obviously, it also affects the waves of uh, immigration to uh, Europe and other places. Uh, and it's uh, now with the involvement of uh, of uh, Russia, it uh, signals the you know the resurgence of uh, Russian assertiveness. On the political arena, and with uh, Iran involved, it uh, creates uh, tension with the Sunni states of uh, the Middle East, Arab states of the Middle East, and obviously with Israel. So, um, so all this has the uh, already has an effect on Syria. and has may may deteriorate into conflict uh, that is, uh, you know, encompasses uh, uh, larger parts of. Uh, the middle east uh, may signal some developments in terms of the relationship between the great powers that is Russia and so forth uh, but you know it's still it's an ongoing event we don't know what the future is we'll have to wait and see uh, you know you know what uh, En-lai, the Chinese uh, uh, communist leader in 1970. He was asked about the significance of the French Revolution. And he said, too early to say. (laughs) So, with uh, Syria today, obviously, it's too early to say. It has has the potential. Mm
0: -hmm. Exactly. So, and what do you think uh, is the significance of this most recent development coming from the Koreas? In terms of the these manifested commitment of North Korea to denuclearization? uh look i I don't have insights that you
1: cannot read uh in the newspapers I mean about the uh, current events i'm as uh, I'm as intelligent or stupid as the rest of humanity of this of you know newspaper readers and uh, if you watch television and so forth what you know what I study is more the fundamental long-term development. I cannot uh, predict tomorrow, and it's uh, nobody can. And studies show that laymen and uh, experts are equally uh, unsuccessful in predicting the future. So I have no pretense of being able to, you know, to predict what will happen here and there, except from the, you know, except for the usual judgments that you know people exercise all the time in looking at the current events
0: Mm -hmm. and so would you say that if we keep following these recent trends in terms of war that possibly in the future war could become an obsolete political endeavor let's say I,
1: I, I'm saying that it has already become so in the most affluent parts of the world, in the most developed parts of the world. So, as I said, in North America, in Europe, in uh, the developed parts of East Asia, this is already a reality. It's in, uh, unimaginable to the people involved that they would ever fight against other developed countries, ag- against their neighbors. And mind you, most wars takes place Historically, between neighbours, now it's it's unimaginable that France and Germany would be in at war with one another uh, anymore. It's uh, so I think that it's already happening, has been happening in the developed parts of the world. Now, to the extent that the rest of the the world is going to embark on the road to development and would become uh, developed and affluent and very comfortable. It's, the logic is very simple, uh, uh, in addition to what I've already said. If you already you know have all the luxuries and good things of life, why risk them and go to war? That's, that's what people feel. They have fun. They uh, have everything. I mean, they have opportunities, entertainment, everything. So they don't find the reason why they should risk uh, not only their life, but uh, you know, their their health, uh, the uh, the uh, difficulties and dangers, and the physical uh, exertion of the battlefield. If they have
0: everything at home. Mm-hmm. Great. So, just before we finish, Dr. Gett, could you please tell people, uh, I don't know if you want to share with people perhaps something you're working on right now, maybe a new book, I don't know, and tell people also where they can follow your work, and I don't know if you're active on social media or not. I'm not
1: active on social media. I work, my work is, uh, you know, in the books that I write so people can easily find uh, my uh, books, and, uh, and uh, you know, if they are interested. Uh, the work that I'm doing now, I'm fascinated by, uh, by the phenomenon of ideological fixation. How fixated people are uh, in the ideological convictions and I've been so even before you know even before uh, the you know the, the election of Trump and all the talks about and the, all the, the divisions of uh, on on ideology in the american arena and the division the, the you know the increasing uh, gulf uh, tensions ideological tension in europe and so forth so um, i'm in uh, I'm, as i said i'm fascinated by this phenomenon i want to explore it uh, further so, so i've begun work on uh, a book on this subject
0: mm-hmm. so uh, could we expect a new book in the near future
1: uh it depends how you define uh, near it will take a few years
0: <laughs> okay okay yeah. so Dr. Gett, I would like to thank you a lot for sparing a bit of your time to being here with us today. Uh, I hope you keep up with the good work because I, I'm really a big fan. And so, again, thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I uh, really uh, thank you for this invitation and for, the, uh, and for the very good, very informed question that you asked.
0: Okay, thank you. So, thank you very have, a nice, have a nice Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Thank you.